whether it is acceptable to recognize and celebrate the holy days of other religions with those believers. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What do you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. This is my second attempt to answer this question. It was originally planned in uh, January for the January Walk the Earth, question number 34. And I had to bump it because at the time I needed to answer a slightly different question in related to a relatively current event. And that question was uh, titled the same way, but I actually addressed a different topic about whether it was appropriate for theists to believe that there is more than one God. Having answered that and seen sort of the end of that story come and go, I'm now ready to revisit the question I was originally planning for this time. After spending the balance of the end of the year last year looking at specific holidays, whether they're religious or not, how Christians celebrate those holidays, something I really hadn't done before on Walk the Earth, I'm now ready to look slightly again at holidays, but now only really from the perspective of whether or not there needs to be a segregation and how holidays are observed. In other words, it's a bit of a parachurch exploration, looking at the relationship between my religious beliefs and people who practice very different faiths, not just denominationally, but the faiths themselves. And it does tie back. So if you haven't heard Walk the Earth 34, near the end of that episode, I do lay some of the groundwork for my past and my background interacting with people of different cultures and being a part of their worship services in the sense of being a guest in the congregation. I say that loosely because some of these things don't really have a great analogy to American Christian worship. But whatever the analogy would be, uh, in one case it was more like we shared our Thanksgiving meal with a family and they shared their family's tradition that was, that was built around the observation of a holiday and the taking of a meal together as a family in that context. Because I'm relatively sure there's no drama around my answer to this question, having spoken about it initially a few months ago, let me just say right up front that to me the answer to the question is yes. It's perfectly acceptable to interact with people of different faiths, including observing their ceremonies, just like it would be acceptable to go to the wedding of a Jewish friend, for example. There are rituals that some within Christianity consider to be sacraments where it's perfectly okay for us to attend and even be a participant in the sacraments of another person's religion. I don't believe that anything in my religious culture tells me that I would have to say no to the invitation to participate as the best man in somebody's wedding if that person was Jewish or Muslim, for example. So the answer to the question is going to be yes, but before I get into some of my reasons and thoughts around it, let me start by answering what seems to be an unrelated question, because this is just a few days after the death of pop singer Prince Rogers Nelson. And what I'm going to say in context to some of the interactions I've had online shortly after his death answers a couple of questions that are really related to this one. First, I would describe Prince as being someone whose religious beliefs are very different from mine. Him being Jehovah's Witness, me, well, not being Jehovah's Witness. And, you know, my uh, esteem for his work and his catalog, I would not describe myself as a big fan, but I was nevertheless sad at the hearing of his unexpected death, 
And not just because I was sad for my friends who took this news much harder than I did, but I also was immediately confronted by what I might describe as the grief police. And I'm making an intentional reference to an online article posted by John Pavlovitz at his website as he was making kind of the same observations and perhaps having the same experiences that I have. It ties into this question because I have spoken in the past, both in inappropriate conversations and walk the earth, without naming a lot of names, about parachurch organizations I've participated in before. And the one that I've probably done the most with and spent the most time on was a Christian group. So it wasn't interdenominational, it's kind of intradenominational, at least in the same you know, sort of evangelical Christianity. But it's the post that I've received here lately from people who seem to be playing the equivalent of an All Lives Matter card on Prince dying that has answered the question for me of if I believe in interacting with people of different denominations, particularly, and, and faiths as well, and even no faith at all, we'll get there in this question, then why would I have walked away from the one that I participated in the most closely? And, and I can give you reasons which will give you shorthand for why. I mean, it's pretty easy. Uh, uh, anybody who believes that President Obama should be depicted with a swastika on his shoulders and a Hitler mustache is a problem for me. Anybody who would make a point of not only going to Chick-fil-A on a day when Chick-fil-A was raising raising money and awareness to celebrate their homophobia and encouraging others to do so, that's going to be a problem for me. And what is also somebody from within this sort of this Emmaus group that I was part of who had posted something basically saying that we shouldn't be mourning for Prince right now. Here's a picture of 20 or 30 police officers who have died in the line of duty this year. And shame on us for not being tearful and praying for their families and mourning their deaths instead of Prince. As if there's some either or here. Here's what Pavlovitz wrote on his uh, April 25th column called The Grief Police at johnpavlovitz.com. Down in the article a little ways, he, he makes this observation. With these expressions of sadness have come other folks who you've probably run into from time to time. I call them, Pavlovitz says, the grief police. The grief police are easy to spot. They're the ones who will tell you, one, who and what you should grieve, two, what form this grief should take, and three, how long that grief should last. For me, it was an even more nefarious example. It really wasn't about the second two. It was more about the either-or logical fallacy inherent in the first one. Here's a list of police officers who've died in the line of duty. And it could just as easily be military men and women fighting for our freedom overseas who've died this year. And the notion is that because we should be mourning the deaths of these people, it's therefore inappropriate that people are overcome with emotion at their experience at the life, the music, and the art of Prince. Well, I didn't answer. It was an act of grace on my part. Because even though I don't feel that I'm in deep mourning over Prince's death, I know that my emotional response to this post online would have been very negative and perhaps disproportionate. Because it's easy enough to just say, hey, that's a, that's a logical fallacy. This isn't an either-or. You can be mournful of both these things at the same time. But that would have been followed up with an outswelling of anger on my part to basically say, and therefore, how dare you tell me that I should not be sad? How dare you tell me I shouldn't be sad at the life ended too soon of this person that I've never met and don't know, while at the same time suggesting that I need to be overwhelmed with grief instead about a list of 30, 40, 50, 100, 1,000, 2,000 other people that I've also never met 
and do not know. The reality is that when we're talking about people who generate art, and you can decide that that's art with a capital A or art with a lower A, whatever you got to do to get you through the night. When you decide that there's no relationship between artist and the consumer of art, you're making a serious mistake. I have never read the lyrics or the poetry or read an interview with any one of those police officers. And it's not a shame on me for skipping it. I've never been presented the opportunity. I do not know what any of those men and women think. But I happen to be aware of what Prince thought and how he expressed himself. And if I choose to be sad that there won't be any more thoughts coming from that individual, it's partly because there's a relationship there. The same logic that says, well, you couldn't possibly have a relationship with an artist just because you're a consumer of that person's art are the same kinds of people who would say, well, you can't possibly be friends with that person because you're only interacting with them online. There are several episodes of inappropriate conversations. Number 100 comes immediately to mind of meeting people that I previously only met online and having nothing and having that do nothing more than solidify the strength of those friendships. Having the words that we've shared with each other by typing on a keyboard spring to life. And in some ways, when you're listening to a song or watching a film or a play, I get emotional at plays. It's very unusual for me to go to a play and not have an emotional response to what I'm seeing. There's just something about the reality of that particular form of performance that, that gets me. So when you've had that kind of reaction, if somebody has been part of the soundtrack to your life, like Prince has been for so many people, it's extremely inappropriate for somebody to suggest that it's wrong for that person to grieve it's wrong for that person to nod their head or tip their hat toward the great accomplishments of somebody who, in my mind, un unmistakably generated art. So I might have decided at one point in my life that I was no longer going to be rubbing elbows and trying to go hand in hand into Christian ministry with the kind of people who are that toxically negative, especially when you could spend your time instead with people who are definitely committed to building bridges rather than blowing them up and make the world a better place. It's an incredible gift when somebody who is not part of your family tradition, your friend circle, your faith tradition, invites you into a moment that might arguably call, be called a sacrament, if there's an equivalent concept for that in their religious tradition. If I invited somebody who was a friend of mine, but not a Christian friend of mine, to come and visit while my son or daughter was being baptized, that's a really important religious moment for me. And it's an honor for me if they say yes and come, but it's also in some ways an honor for them that what might be an insular moment of, of religiosity at its worst, or at the very least recognizing something that's important to me spiritually, that they would be invited to be witnesses to that. It builds bridges between people who have very different traditions and very different cultures. And I've never done that as a means to an end, as a way of saying, well, if I invite this person to my church, they might ask questions and I might be able to share my faith with them. And then they might leave their faith tradition and join my faith tradition. That's sort of a means to an end approach. And it always amazes me how often so many Christians use an ends versus the means approach in their own way of living their life or evangelizing in this case. And yet being so quick to criticize that as a character flaw when they see other people behaving manipulatively. So no, for me, it's, it's never about manipulation. It's simply about, I've got a relationship with somebody, and if their experience is different from mine, then I know I've got an opportunity to learn. And the more I know about them, the more that relationship will grow, 
And the more that relationship will grow, there's always that chance that that that, uh, that there'll be a grace between us or even a love between us that will truly be a God thing, even if our experiences of God are very different. Let me cite some source material here just to kind of back up my sense that interfaith engagement is important. This is a post that was run on Huffington Post, uh, middle of middle of April, April 13th, uh, last you know, earlier this month. And Jim Burklow, Associate Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California, had seven principles he wanted to put out there about interfaith engagement. Let me just start at the beginning of the article, and then I'll quickly hit his bullet points. Here I offer some basic guidance about how people of different faiths can engage with each other in meaningful and productive ways. The advice is the product of 36 years of interfaith work culminating in my present job at the University of Southern California. Now, what I want us to do as I walk through some of the points that he's trying to make is not just to ask the question of imagine what this means for Christians sharing their own experiences and being open and welcoming to uh, interfaith dialogue with Jews or Muslims or with Hindus or Buddhists, but also with atheists and agnostics. Let's just humor me for a moment and go down the line of saying, Interfaith ministries can and should include the notion of interrelationship and inner dialogue between people who have different faiths, but also people who have what we might call one of these traditional you know, religious beliefs, these traditional faiths, and no faith at all. Willfully or accidentally, no faith at all. It ought to work. Um, I'm a uh, member of the Minion Army at the podcast Greetings from Nowhere. I'm a fan in other words, but more than that, they've got something that they do for fun where they put out a form that you can follow or not follow to answer a few questions and be asked to be included in their minion army. And when I did that, I said that, you know, one of the things that that group currently didn't have was an amateur chaplain, and that I was not only more than happy to be somebody who carried that title for this, you know, podcast's minion army, but that I thought I was probably qualified because I intend to be not just conversant in all faiths, like you'd expect a chaplain to be, but also extremely conversant in no faith at all. That to me, you're not covering the gambit. You're not capable of ministering to the needs of people in the true meaning of the word ministry if you cannot meet people in a grace-filled encounter where the person that you're ministering to doesn't have a faith tradition. You're not making assumptions and trying to meet them halfway between where you stand and their Buddhist beliefs. Theravada or Mahayana, doesn't matter, either way. You're in some ways trying to meet them between where you are and where they stand on an absolute non-belief, perhaps even a fully entrenched non-belief. That's got to be functional. So as I work my way through this list fairly quickly, think about it in terms of not just the principle of two people from two different world religions interacting, or two people from very different, perhaps even compatible Christian denominations interacting, but what it might mean if we held this standard up as the way Christians should think about orienting their minds toward interacting with people who have left the church and left the church for reasons that also include a complete abandonment of the faith or have never, never even seriously, never taken Christianity seriously because, among other things, they never encounter people asking the kinds of questions I ask on Walk the Earth. If you feel that Christianity is silly and superficial, then I might share your sense that there's no point investing your time in it. But back to the article and you know, giving, uh, giving Berklow a little bit of time to speak of these seven principles of interfaith engagement. Number one, the world's religions are different from each other. That ought to go without saying, 
but there's a lot of people I think act on the assumption that these are really the same. He shared a quote from a colleague. He identifies as Robert Gregg, the former dean of Memorial Church, who once wisely said that the world's religions are many paths up many different mountains. But when you get to the top of any of the mountains, you can admire a beautiful mountain range. In Interfaith Conversations, Burklow says, it's a lot safer and also more interesting and productive to presume that the religions of others are pretty different than one's own. In other words, it debunks the idea, the universalist notion, I am not a universalist, that there's one God, well, I believe that, but that all faiths are basically climbing up the same mountain or ultimately going to reach the same peak. I think that it diminishes the the size and scale, for want of a better word, of the concept of deity. And I am, frankly, fairly comfortable with the idea that maybe all religions are different paths up different mountains, but at some point you might be standing atop your own peak, but sharing a mountain range and coming to the aha moment of saying, this was never about one mountain to begin with. Number two, the differences between religions are different. Burklow says, the difference between Hinduism and Islam is not analogous to the differences between Christianity and Judaism. Furthermore, these faiths have substantially different indigenous definitions of religion. Judaism as a religion is quite different than Christianity as a religion. For one thing, Judaism has an intrinsically ethnic identity that Christianity lacks. And if you see a lot of the mistakes, Greg speaking, of uh, the Christians make, this Christian nation obsession that some Christians have, I think some of that is a reaction to many Christians believing that Christianity should have an ethnicity that you see often in other religions. Judaism has got one. Hinduism has a bit of a different one. Again, the differences between the religions are themselves different from each other. But to me, um, Christianity is not uh, you know, built around a single ethnic group. And the sort of white privilege obsession of some Christians seems to be a, a subconscious understanding of that and a move to rewrite history in a very anti-intellectual way to make a claim that just isn't true. Number three, religions and sects of religions have different ways of understanding religious differences. But these differences don't necessarily impede interfaith engagement. So basically the idea is that all of us understand, so there are differences, those differences make a difference, and our understanding of those differences are different. And this is where I began to think when I was reading through it that this actually applies to atheism as well, that if you've got a simplistic straw man view of somebody who is either atheist or not Christian, or if you believe that everybody who's not Christian is somehow satanic, if you've got another either or fallacy going on, like the idea that if you're mourning Prince's death, you must hate the police or whatever, and not the band either, but the actual you know, police. It's that sort of silliness. Number four, different issues make for surprising interfaith bedfellows. Understanding the nuances of different faith perspectives on social issues is important for those who want to promote interfaith cooperation, to seek common ground where possible, and to make room for disagreement where possible. An important example is religious freedom, Berklow writes. In America today, the theologically progressive branches of Christianity, Judaism, and some other faiths tend not to perceive any threat to the free exercise of their faiths. Meanwhile, some of the more conservative manif manifestations, particularly in Christianity, feel that their religious freedom is under attack as social norms and laws have changed. These conservative religious groups define religious freedom to allow their organizations and their followers to discriminate against people who violate their faith-based norms. 
They believe that religion should not just be freely exercised, but also given a privileged status by the government to influence the wider society. But some faith communities that share this view may disagree about the other definitions of religious freedom. For instance, they may agree that one company owned by a person whose whose religion forbade birth control should not have to offer employees health insurance coverage that included contraception. But they might disagree about churches keeping their tax-exempt status if their preachers endorsed a political candidate from the pulpit. Understanding the historical and theological reasons for these differing views will help greatly in promoting interfaith engagement. This is a very interesting point for me, and I read the entire point, because it kind of gets down to the fact that a lot of people who hold what the author describes here as the conservative religious group view have made themselves very insular. You'll find that they're perhaps knowingly even afraid that if they interacted freely with people of different religious beliefs, they wouldn't just find differences that they might then have to explain that might be inconsistent with what they were taught in Sunday school as a child. But they might also have problems and that they might have to deal with the question of those people who are very different from them, but agree on certain philosophical points. In other words, imagine um, how concerning it would be for one of these religious freedom conservative Christians to have to come face to face with the fact that their underlying philosophy of the primacy and privilege of religion, how that lines up with concepts in parts of the Muslim world of Sharia law. And would they be capable? Do they possess the intellectual acumen of recognizing that their privilege status is very similar in lots of ways philosophically to the privilege status asserted by some followers of the Quran? They avoid that cognitive dissonance that would create by never letting themselves be faced with the question by never engaging in interfaith engagement to begin with. Number five. It's good to know something about the world's religions, at least enough to know just how much you don't know. I've named Hank Hanegraaff of the Christian Research Institute as a different drummer in the past, and I did so with several disclaimers at the time, and my feelings about those disclaimers have not changed. Because I think there's a line here to say, are you learning and educating yourself about people who believe differently, about world religions, for example, Sully is a means by which to denounce those religions or uh, you know, try to counteract their influence as you perceive it or to evangelize to those believers. To me, it's not enough to learn just enough to use people's beliefs as a weapon against them. This is exactly right. It's important to know enough to know just how much you don't know. How many simplistic ideas do we have about what agnostics think? And how naive they are when you consider the fact that agnosticism itself is perhaps an almost infinite spectrum of questioning, doubt, and disbelief. Number six. In America today, interfaith, not interfaith, but interfaith exploration, is part of interfaith engagement. The trend in religion in the U.S. is toward increasing heterodoxy. Catholics are doing yoga. Evangelicals are going to tarot card readings. Jews have been practicing Zen meditation for decades. Even people who who profess strong traditional religious identities are engaging in the practices of other religions and cultures, mashing them up as they follow their own personal spiritual paths. Just because somebody says they are Zoroastrian, and you happen to know a lot about that tradition, that doesn't mean that you know what that individual believes or practices. So tying into the learn enough to know just how much you don't know, but also recognize that there is enough, uh, for want of a better word, multiculturalism 
the internet, the information age exposes us to so much more information that there are unexpected and perhaps surprising crossovers, even from religious beliefs that you might, in your mind, assume are isolated. Finally, number seven, you can grow in your own faith tradition through deep exposure to other traditions. I could not have said this better myself. Burklow says, learning and practicing Buddhist meditation methods taught me to explore the rich meditative and contemplative mystical traditions of my Christian heritage. Learning about other faiths from their practitioners has heightened my interest in their similarities and differences with my faith. Any risk of temptation to switch religions is outweighed by the benefit of going deeper into one's faith as a consequence of interfaith dialogue. This is the resounding yes, in my opinion to the question we're facing today of whether it is acceptable to recognize and celebrate the holy days of other religions with those believers. Yes, because recognizing that, interacting, helping to build that bridge will give me more access, not just to my friends and what they think and what their experiences are, but also, perhaps, maybe more than perhaps, to myself. I'm asking this question at this point in time for a reason. I was going to ring in the new year with the question, so this isn't as strategic as it seems. But I'm asking this question during the week of the Jewish Passover, and and also during what is Holy Week in Eastern Orthodoxy, because their celebration of Easter is is at a different time than what we call Western Christianity, different from Catholicism, different from most Protestant groups. But also... We're something like a month away from the beginning of Ramadan. I think that's probably the first week of June. Talked about it in the last show where I hinted at this question back in January. That there were, perhaps a year ago, several stories coming out of Muslims who wanted to to practice Lent with Christians. Because they'd met Christians and there was an interfaith dialogue going on. And you also saw last year, and I say last year, this has probably been going on for longer than I'm aware of it, of Christians practicing or at least sharing as much as they can with the traditions of Ramadan with with Muslim friends. Again, I don't think your your faith is in any peril because you show a genuine amount of respect, grace, and love toward your neighbor, especially if it really well and truly is your neighbor and you're observing the period of fasting with them because you're also going to enjoy the celebration at the end of at the end of light on that particular day. So it's one thing to say, well I'm I just don't really do things like um, fasting, for example, or uh, I, I don't, I couldn't possibly observe Yom Kippur because I don't understand any of the tradition. Understanding is step one. And by opening up your mind and being open and learning and being humble, and again, recognizing that some of these principles are right on target. It's not just that you can grow from within your own faith tradition through an exposure to other traditions, but it's also very helpful to be aware of the fact that knowing something about the world's religion might just help make you humble. Understanding a little bit more about the experience of somebody who is atheist or agnostic just might expose you to exactly how much you don't know. There's a strain of Christianity that believes in magic words, and I've probably referenced this in past Walk the Earth questions. The, the idea that it, there, there's a special prayer and you got to get the words just right and you have to say it exactly right, and, and then there's, there's magic in that, and, and that the sincerity of the heart is diminished somehow in the precise execution of ritual. Well, you know what? From an interfaith ministry or intrafaith ministry perspective, I might have to spend a lot of time interacting and sharing with somebody who is Christian and believes that way. Because that belief within the spectrum of Christianity is as foreign to me 
as a belief in witchcraft. In fact, in many ways, I would describe it as having much more in common with witchcraft than, well, anything that I would describe as a genuine Protestant faith. But it's important for me to remember that I need to keep an open mind about those kinds of dialogues if they're genuine, if they're springing from a form of agape love. While I'm also uh, more willfully open to that kind of interaction with people who struggle with belief, who do not believe, or come from a completely different faith tradition. So, to circle back to where I started at the beginning, am I wrong then to have completely severed ties with some who are part of a Protestant parachurch faith group trying to do good things in the world, prison ministry, for example, doing a better job of providing a basic religious education for people who presume to be leaders within their their church or congregation. These are good things. Was I right to sever ties with them? I think here's the key. When we're talking about interfaith ministry and that sort of interaction, there's got to be a few assumptions. One is that no one inside that dialogue intends to do me harm. That's got to be important. Another one would be that that I'm not out to convert them and they're not out to convert me. That, that that's got to be an important assumption. And that the, uh, the relationship itself isn't going to be or turn toxic. Well, I will tell you that if somebody wants to decry or even denounce a group of people for being sad that somebody they cared about is dead, that's toxic. If somebody would rather uh, spend a lot of their own money trying to support an organization, not in spite of the fact that they were supporting hate groups who have among their mission statements the goal of uh, imprisoning or even executing gay people, but are desperate to spend them. It's, it's not an accident that they're spending their money. They're spending their money intentionally that way. I'm sorry, that's, that's kind of a deal breaker. That falls under the headline of toxic. And the other thing about that relationship that might actually be toxic is that they might judge me as somebody from the same denomination with the same faith tradition for being, quote-unquote, too open, too accepting of people who have very different faith traditions or no faith tradition at all. Modern Christianity needs to get a grip on its problem with acceptance. That, to me, the first step in loving somebody genuinely, which is kind of what Jesus talks about when he's talking about, what does Jesus mean when he says, all your heart and soul and strength and mind... You can't love somebody with any part of your heart and soul and strength and mind if the entire time you're presuming to love them, you're also pretending they're not who they say they are. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be real. And for, for that to be true, for the relationship to be you know, that real and that specific, there can't be this notion that I'm only there to stop you from being who you are. I'm only there to facilitate the process of radically changing you. God's plan, if you're a believer is much bigger than my plan. And I don't get to decide how transformation occurs, whether it's happened, when it's going to happen. I don't have any magic power here. If I'm making a difference in the lives of people, it's probably a subtle difference. And more often than not, overwhelmingly, more often than not, too subtle for me to notice. That's okay. I believe as a Christian, it's about going where you're called to go. And if you're never being called by the Holy Spirit, To interact in a genuine, loving, open, curious, open-handed way, open-arms way, with somebody of a very different denominational belief or faith belief or somebody who has walked away from the church altogether, if that isn't genuine, 
If the Holy Spirit is never calling you to go into that kind of interaction genuinely, then perhaps you should begin to look in the mirror and ask questions about whether or not are you doing what Paul described as being the kind of Christian who's too immature for the real mission that God's been preparing you for? Are you still stuck on milk because you're not ready to digest solid food? Because everything's got to be simple enough for it to fit into your obsession with beliefs being right above all. Have you not been equipped sufficiently, like King David, to be sent into the valley of the shadow of death with the faith and the confidence that you will be fine because God is on your side and the Holy Spirit is driving your steps? We have Christians in America today who are more terrified of hearing someone else share a very different life experience in a public way than they are of almost anything you can imagine. That makes me very sad, because it's diametrically opposed to the answer to today's Walk the Earth question. Yes, it's acceptable to recognize and celebrate the holy days of other religions with those believers. It's a good thing. It might just be a God thing. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Spirit of the Living God We openly speak of you as being one who moves in mysterious ways, and yet so often we shield ourselves from mystery. And Lord, I know I've been guilty of that. I've divested myself of the opportunity to interact directly with people within Christianity who have very different understandings of the world. And there's a very real possibility that that's a mistake. But it's also been quite some time, Lord, since I've sat down to celebrate Seder, either with Jewish friends or with guests in our church. And it's been never in my life that I've done anything to observe Ramadan or any other sort of religious belief that falls within the realm of Islam. I've always been a curious reader of Hinduism and Buddhism, but I've never done much with that on an interpersonal level. Am I just as guilty as the people I've talked about, Jesus, of being somebody who's not yet fully prepared to take that step? Or has your Holy Spirit pointed me in a different direction? Am I simply wired in a way that I'm more comfortable dealing with people whose faith is no faith at all? And if so, is that your leading? Or is that my comfort zone? I can't pretend that I honestly know the answer to that question. I can only presume that if my heart's in the right place, and if I'm acting out of love, for want of a better word, that you'll continue to guide my steps. Lord, it's with the deepest sincerity I can muster that I pray that you let that be so. Let that be so, Lord. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions.
Music by Kevin McLeod. Next on Walk the Earth, whether being slow to try fasting is a spiritual problem. Thanks for listening.